Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. This week, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that he now supports the legalization of recreational cannabis, a long-overdue, politically expedient about-face that I'm certain will be enthusiastically welcomed by every New Yorker I know. Everyone, that is, except maybe a few pot dealers, who will soon have to look for a new job. Selling marijuana in a non-legal state is a strange business. It puts you on the margins, of course, because it's dangerous. Thousands of people are in jail for providing the same basic service that is now generating valuable tax revenue for California, Colorado, and eight other states. But because of the legality challenges, pot dealers and their customers have to transact in the shadows. Or, as is often the case, in their private living rooms. Because of this, the customer service side of cannabis sales is, as they say, high-touch. And the dealer gets a chance to see more into the lives of his customers than most law-abiding merchants ever do. That's the conceit behind the wonderful HBO comedy High Maintenance, which follows a pot dealer, known simply as The Guy, as he makes his rounds by bike and visits the apartments of the Brooklynite characters that text him to arrange deliveries. The show is one of my favorite things out there at the moment. It captures the Brooklyn I know and love and skewers it, ironically and affectionately. Ben Sinclair plays The Guy. He's also the co-creator of the show with his ex-wife, Katya Blichfeld. High Maintenance debuted as a no-budget indie web series, became a critic's favorite, and got picked up by HBO, which allowed them to expand the canvas that they had already been painting to beautiful effect. The third season starts on January 20th. In this episode, we talk with Ben about making high maintenance, his creative process, biking in New York, the breakup with his wife while maintaining a creative partnership, his relationship to cannabis, and his encounter with ayahuasca. Ben is a perceptive artist and storyteller, and disarmingly open about his own experience. I truly enjoyed this conversation, and hope you will too. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. 
Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Do you do a lot of other gigs aside from gigs? Maintenance? I guess I do whatever is is most convenient with my schedule and that uh, comes easiest. I don't audition for stuff anymore. Sometimes I'll be asked to put on myself on tape for something for acting, and depending on the project, like I will, I will take time out of my schedule to do that. But it's pretty much high maintenance, and then preparing for whatever is going to come next. Uh, either either in tandem or or after high maintenance, but I don't think that it'll be done for a while yet. Yeah, you're already looking at the next thing. Yeah, I uh, I sold a film in the winter time. That is, uh, I'm writing with a co-writer Abdullah Saeed, and uh, we should be finished with uh, the writing of that pretty soon. Awesome! Yeah, wow. yeah. congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's exciting. Yeah. No, I definitely did not think that I would have uh, the opportunities that I... I'm 34, and I I thought I just wanted to be an actor at the beginning. So to have the option to write and direct and act and edit and uh, produce is, and have, like, experience in all of those facilities by this age is really is pretty, uh, pretty cool. It's a blessing. And Was High Maintenance your first writing gig? Oh, yeah. Well, I've, like, shadowed other uh, showrunners who have their writing rooms, and I've, like, sat in for a day or two there, but I've never stepped into a professional TV writing room or anything like that. To this day? Yeah, to this day. I sat in the Big Mouth writer's room two days, and, yeah, that's the only writing room I've ever been in besides ours. That's so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But was it an aspiration for you to be a writer? At I time? knew that I had a lot of ideas for stories. I found uh, during Thanksgiving, I found a bunch of letters I wrote to, like one to Steven Spielberg, where I was pitching him a movie idea. I used to write one or two page stories about my family, but in like medieval circumstances or like my sister, I remember was dating this one guy who um, my parents didn't like. So I wrote a whole story about that, but it was like a Rapunzel kind of story. And uh, um, it was the font. I liked fonts a lot. So that was written in an old English font and it was hard to read. But yeah, I used to type up like one or two page stories in the computer. Hmm. And I did that for a couple of years. What happened to those? They're around. Yeah. They're still around. Very surreal. There was a lot of mm-hmm. surrealist stuff happening. I remember there was something with like these birds that were ravaging this village by sh- shitting ground, uh, grandfather clocks out of their asses. They would just like shit clocks all <laughs> over the city and just destroy everyone. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so did you come from, do you feel like you had more of a sort of a literary inclination at a certain point when you were younger? Maybe. There was yeah. poems and stuff like that, uh, that. Uh, kind of probably between fourth grade and eighth grade I was like just writing on my own and then once I got into performing arts which was more in high school Mm -hmm. uh, then it was just interpreting other other people's writing and then by the time I got to college it was very performance focused and I was very serious about becoming an actor with a capital A and then I got into Chekhov a lot those kind of plays, Chekhov plays, are really boring to watch, but they're really exciting to act in because there's a lot of subtle layers and and a lot of character building that you can do, which feels very, very real. Um, they can uh, be fun to watch. It, it, oh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. yes, I'm, I'm, I'm. I mean, there's, I'm the, a there's a lot of it that is uh, that is hard to connect with. I'll just say, in my experience of watching it, because mm-hmm. it's played for the drama a lot of times and a lot of the customs, the old like turn of the century Russian customs that were in it and the language and the patronymic naming of everybody, that is uh, that is hard to grasp for some. Uh, yeah, okay, understood. Yes, yes. Yeah. I saw a Wooster Group performance of God, was it the Seagull? Mm-hmm. That was, was pretty it? fun. That was great. Because, yeah, the you Seagull's know. Exce- yeah. more accessible uh-huh. than some of the other ones. I did mm-hmm. Three Sisters in college and I did the Cherry Orchard when I... Uh, was in Williamstown one summer. And I like those quite a bit. But also, like, I studied Russian language my freshman year of college. I lived in Mongolia between high school and college. And I was kind of getting into that side of the world. And then my junior year of college, I studied at the Moscow Art Theater in Moscow for five months. And I got really uh, immersed in Chekhov and Stanislavski and Gorky and all that shit. And then uh, I got really disillusioned while there. I would go to like four or five plays a week, and I thought the acting was very melodramatic, and I realized that the Russians actually kind of uh, favor melodrama, even though they say that they're into naturalism. You know, they kind of like clown a lot in bigger performances. And not that I don't like clown, but I thought it was going to be like film acting, you know what I mean, naturalistic film acting. But it was, you know, you're on the stage and you have to project your actions. So as a result... I was up close to, and I was like, oh, this looks huge. And then, you know, I guess there was probably a lot of ego stuff that was coming up for me. And I remember I would kind of bump heads with my acting teachers all the time because I was either tired or overworked or depressed or hungover or whatever, what have you, all those things that go into being Russian. And they are, the teachers, 
they did espouse some tradition of suffering that seemed to be inherent to the Russian process, uh, even though there are some Russians I know who are like, no, but uh, mm-hmm. I that's what I observed. And uh, I kind of bumped heads with my teachers a lot. And I remember uh, it was they brought all of the students from this semester abroad program into the office with all of the teachers and the headmaster of the school and the, phys- uh, the physical uh, you know, movement teacher. And they kind of told you what they thought about you. And they would ask you what you want to become. And I really wanted to become an actor, but in a way to protect myself from the being told that I shouldn't become an actor, I told them I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and that would just popped out of my mouth. I had been writing a lot in my journal on that trip uh, into Russia, and I started writing very small, like as small as possible, because I didn't want to fill up the book too fast. So I have like a book full of really psychotic writing. It's like millimeters tall, these words. I didn't know that, in fact, that I would be as much known for the writing as I am for the acting and the directing I do. The show is so subtly done. Mm-hmm. The characters are presented in a way that it has a, a, a strong literary element to it, which yeah. is different than most TV. Well, I think that's what was borrowed from Chekhov, really. What seemed so cool about it to me, or the kind of epiphany I had while watching it, was that the most explosive moments in those play are some of the smallest moments in that play. They either happen off-screen, like when Tuzenbach and that guy duel, that happens off off stage. Uh, a lot of these people's dramatic climaxes happen internally or very quietly to themselves uh, while people are talking about some. They'll be talking about onion soup and somebody is having like an existential breakdown. And that's really what I was drawn to. I just noticed in life that at least in my family, people weren't so great at talking about how they felt. They would cover up or protect their vulnerabilities by making a joke or teasing or, you know, shutting down or anything. And that's what life looks like to me is I was watching Christopher Walken talk about acting in a a Letterman interview once, and they were asking how he kind of makes his uh, minds natural. And he said, well, you know, I, I think that I'll say something, in real life, I'll say something to you like, oh, it's nice to be here. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, what am I going to eat for dinner? Beef and broccoli or something like that. There was just uh, two things going on. And I I always enjoy when somebody uses a method to either protect themselves or a tactic to get what they want that is not right on the money, which saying like, I want affection or I want attention. People don't say that out loud. They do something because they want that, and it's more active that way. In a way, what you've done is kind of transpose the whole Chekhovian thing into Brooklyn 2016, 17, 18. (laughs) Yeah, perhaps, yeah. In a weird way. Um, Focusing on those little subtle aspects of our neighborhood culture. Yeah, I guess that's, I mean, I, that wasn't the necessarily the literal intention. And uh, a lot of, I, it wasn't just born out of my experience in Russia. Katya also has that bent to Katya is my co-creator and ex-wife and, and co-collaborator and so many things. And her bent was also to uh, give the audience some credit. She kept on saying, let's give the audience credit and not like beat them over the heads with what we want them to understand. We can infer that this person is lonely based on like the way they hold their shoulders or like their their choice to stay in and order weed and and lie about 
you know, what they're doing this weekend or what have you, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rarely that somebody is so in touch with their feelings that they can say exactly what they're feeling. Yeah, but what do you do with the show? Is it because of the focus on the different characters ordering weed? Yeah. Which is usually often in a situation of stress of some yeah. kind. We recognize weed usage as an, a numbing agent, and uh, we're not shy about that, but it's, it works well with New York City because there's so much stimulation. Oh, yeah. Not so for a lot of folks. That numbing can be a very valuable yeah. <laughs> experience, yeah, to, I, I, opportunity I, to have. I don't knock it, except uh, I recognize that it can be abused, and I recognize it can be... Um, um, a positive medication, but also like it's it's um, it is a way of reframing your point of view in this city. And our show is all about point of view. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience of cannabis, your own relationship? Cannabis. So I started probably smoked for the first time when I was twelve or thirteen in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I grew up in the suburbs. I think I smoked just some like crushed up leaves that somebody gave me first, and then I was like, "Oh, this doesn't work." And then I remember the first time I ever did it was at a uh, shopping center called Shea Fourteen, and I was in like a little grassy knoll island, basically where the cars entered the shopping center, and we when fi- I finally got high and I laughed so hard I was rollicking, rolling on the in the grass. Middle school still? Yeah, middle school. And then I remember going into a restaurant to use the bathroom and that experience of everybody looking at me like I had done something wrong. And I just like, it was, at that time was very uh, memorable because while I had tried alcohol and cigarettes and anything like that, that was truly the most high I've ever been off. Like even helium that I had like tried <laughs> like at bar mitzvahs before that, that uh-huh. It was really like, oh, my brain is different now. And then I kind of, I never bought it myself until senior year of college, literally. I would just be around like the kids who had it. I was a cheapskate also for most of my life. So I didn't ever have a dealer growing up or I didn't sell it ever because I was still kind of, we were, uh, I didn't want to piss off my parents that much. And I knew I'd probably get caught if I started selling it because people did get caught around me. But I would smoke other people's weed until uh, the year after Russia, which was my senior year of college. I had gained a bunch of weight on this trip, and I became friends. And I was friends with this guy Brian, who is a very close friend of mine still to this day, and he's an inspiration for a lot of the characters in the show. And he. Uh, and I started training for a marathon together. We were like, oh, we got to lose some weight. And so we started working out together. And then we, he was like a very functional stoner. And he sold weed all over campus. And he and I basically would get like ripped and go on like 10-mile runs together. They became 15-mile run. Like we would, it. so it felt like a function, then it became a functioning uh, habit for me and I was able to well d- debatable but able to smoke and go to class and perform just fine make although, and bake or yeah well because we'd run in the morning yeah like mm-hmm. we would do that and so I guess that was the beginning of my waking and baking but before that I would just smoke other people's weed mm-hmm. and then after post college I lived with Brian and then I definitely became dependent on it for you know 
not, yeah, I would say dependent. I, I really like numbed those hard years post college. And it's interesting. I do think that, like you said, that disappointment is like a great teacher. Like, I would even say that disappointment in myself for feeling dependent on that, uh, on that substance was a great teacher for me because a lot of what we're writing about is like, not even feeling dependent on just a plant, but feeling dependent on other people, codependency, you know what yeah, I mean? And yeah. Like it just gave me an understanding of, of, of why people always can't do the best by themselves. You know what I mean? That, that it gave me an understanding that people, um, it's logical just to do the right thing and to do your best all the time. But I have a deep understanding with why people can't do their best all the time. So how long were you deep with, cannabis in that way where you felt it was maybe a bit excessive and how still it's been that way for i'm 34 and i think i started really functionally smoking at 21 so yeah 13 years 14 years so it's a consistent kind of usage oh yeah oh yeah i've taken i typically i typically take three weeks in january off like a fast kind of yeah yeah how do you do dry january how do you how do you manage that well it's easy because the only thing that we'd really or that weed withdrawal really makes difficult is falling asleep can be hard sometimes. And I have insanely vivid dreams that like, that are, that are insanely not restful. So my sleep is a little less restful when I go off weed, but for the most part, like if I'm active in other endeavors, whether it be like exercising or even just like keeping my brain active and I, there's not a lot of time to, I mean, it's hardest when something happens in life that you don't like and you want to just shut off for a second. And then you're like, oh, I'm not doing that right now. That's when it's the hardest. And then you have to find a substitute for your attention. Luckily, there's so many things to think about in my life. Uh, this show is pretty all-consuming, and it comes out in January 20th next year. So I'll probably write when it comes out, be done with my dry three weeks, and I'll be able to celebrate. Okay. <laughs> cool. You know, at the Alchemist Kitchen, mm-hmm. which is the shop we got. Yeah, of course. CBD sales. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest driver. Yeah, you know, for we sure. We have a, a lot of folks in the cannabis world coming through. You know, we do what we can do legally there. Yeah. Um, which is, you know. I know everyone is. Yeah, and this is, this is the way. The CBD it, water in my cafe on my street. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of the relationship that people have to plants in general around in our in our little world, mm-hmm. and then the CBD in particular, you hear a lot of it, folks' relationship to the spiritual side of cannabis, mm-hmm. to the more sacramental aspects of it. Yeah, it's a form of animism, really. It's like capitalist animism. You know what I mean? Uh, giving respect to the spiritual nature of a plant and also being like, and we can make money off of this, this spiritual connection. It's really fascinating. It, these things get all kind of woven together in yeah. a really interesting way. Do you feel you have a connection to that the aspect plant? of it, to the plant? Yeah. The healing side of it? Well, the healing side, or do you feel it as a kind of, let me put it this way. You, could, you can take a plant the same way you can take a pill, mm-hmm. right? It's something that you, it alters you. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, well, or, you know, or snort a line or whatever mm-hmm, yeah. it is. It's like it has its, it's, it's, it's a mechanical relationship. Yeah. This is what I do to get myself into a certain place. For sure. Right? You can also have a relationship to the plant 
where you're noticing that it has a kind of sentience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it has an awareness, that it has a, a, a presence mm-hmm. that is maybe even intentional on some level. You yeah. can get, develop a relationship to that. Well, I would say for me, it's a trickster spirit for me. I feel like it's like a Loki spirit. When I started smoking when I was in you know middle school, high school, and, and to an extent college, uh, I wasn't proud of my relationship with it. I thought it was like hanging out with the bad kid or something like that. And it was a source of uh, shame how much relief I felt from the plant. And once I started telling people unapologetically that I was stoned or that I like to get stoned or that this was a part of me, this trickster spirit that the plant had, which would essentially take a conventional norm, like a way of saying something or an attitude towards something, and it, I, I call it, help me enter that concept through the back door. Like I wouldn't need to knock on the front door. I could jump the fence, go to the back door, and just walk in. And it was just a different way of approaching every idea. So it kind of, when I wasn't shunned for being a avid cannabis user, I fig- I thought this trickster spirit was actually helping me skip the line, so to speak, of conventional norms, that I was able to get to the heart of matters, that I was able to not go through the ceremonial small talk that people normally go and it because I was in another frame of mind that people were uh, more forgiving of my flouting of those conventional norms. Do you find it easier to write? Yes. Yeah. Mm, it depends. It depends on what stage of writing we're talking about. If we're talking about cracking ideas, yes. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about getting words on the page, no. If we're talking about editing, yes. But if we're talking about judging whether you had whether we're done, no. You know what I mean? Like looking at it and being like, yeah, this is good. You typically should like sleep on it and then wait, read it in the morning before you like release it. But and for my writing, because I have so much control over the production process and the editing process, I don't tend to I tend to be very flexible with my writing. I tend to understand that this is not the final product, that the show itself is the final product, and that these sentences and these directions, these actions are basically a way to get people to show up onto set, and based on what location we get and what actor we get and what props we get, I will just on the fly change the writing there. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. On on the set? With cameras there and everything, yes. it's like okay, let's flip this one. And at that point, do you feel it's more useful to be stoned or not stoned? stoned? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, everybody's got their own relationship. To yeah, this. no, I'm just I smoke. I smoke on set for sure. Uh-huh. I mean, at lunch break, not on set in front of everybody, but like when I take my lunch break, I walk away. Yeah. It's quite all right. Mm-hmm. One thing that is helpful on set when smoking is uh, it takes it helps me take everything a lot less seriously which can be a real, it's just a show. Like, it helps me understand that it's just a show, and we're just telling stories here, and that this is, we're not, like, saving anyone's life. We might helping be helping somebody by, like, distracting them from their own problems or making them see somebody else who's had a similar problem to them, and, you know. Mm-hmm. But 
the process of making it was used to be for fun, and it should be for fun. And in the past, and a couple of years of making, especially when we made the transition to HBO, it felt like a do-or-die situation. It felt like a very high-stakes situation. And smoking on set or smoking while I'm working is a pressure release in that sense because I think my inner voice is, is pretty harsh, naturally. Uh, I grew up uh, very... I grew up the youngest of four... They were all overachievers. My whole family really put a big emphasis on education and achievement and where you go to the right college and this and that. And while I did all of those things, it did create a voice of, well, this isn't good enough and this isn't good enough, which I think is actually to the benefit of, I think if I thought everything was good enough, then it wouldn't be, then I would have released crap. You know what I mean? So... The positive of that is you do better work. The negative of that is you accustom yourself to speaking to yourself, or you can accustom yourself to speaking of yourself a little uh, harshly, a little like you can do better than this, or feeling it doesn't feel good to realize that you haven't done your best, or you know. But you're happy with what you've been doing. You feel like I'm happy with what I've been doing once it's done. But while I'm making it, it's terrible. Oh, do you drive yourself crazy? Do you like? Do yeah, you like get like beat down on yourself. I used to, not much anymore. Mm-hmm. I've learned how to, I think I've learned how to pick my battles in terms of what is good from the first kernel of the idea. Like sometimes it's you just, the first uh, kernel of inspiration, you know it's going to be a good episode. You know that just inherently something about the way that this was formed in the in the ideation is is great. And sometimes you have a story that is riddled with problems from the the beginning to the end and you put extra effort into it more than the other episodes and it still only can get to 75% of that effortless kernel that just kind of was good from the inception. Which is the episode that you feel was the most satisfying to you? The one that really rocked it? I knew that that dog episode was going to be good when I... That was written quickly. That was written within a couple of hours. Uh, I was in the shower, and I thought about it. And then I got out of the shower. I don't know where Katya was, but I just wrote the whole thing down. And that had very little edits to it, except for who was playing the main actor, and that was all switched. But I knew how that was going to look. That was hard to produce in a way because it was an animal and not a human, but I knew that was going to be good. I knew that the Globo episode that opened last season was going to be good. I knew that that came from a very, very personal place, and I knew that— This is the one where Trump is never mentioned. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Well, he, we don't talk about it that whole season. We never yeah. say his name, but— But there's this this pall of disaster on everybody's face but because, after the election. Yeah, and that one was written on inauguration. We were in a writer's room, and he was being inaugurated, and I— thought about all of the writers' rooms that day that were trying to be funny, and I thought about like all of the people who were just trying to do their work while this terrible thing was happening in the background, and I said, well, geez, you know, it would be really interesting to see, and this is what we do a lot of times, is if we're not sure that we can make like a very good uh, build-up to this huge climax, we start the story right after the climax has already happened and watch people's reactions to it. We do that often in in terms of like, oh, I can't make a believable build-up or it's going to take too long to build it up when we tell short stories. So we just start after that 
thing happened. Right. So you're catching the emotional fallout. Yes. And and the role that the guy and his product plays. Yes, exactly. In them doing their coping mechanism. Yeah. And and for me, you know, I Katya and I separated on election day. Like we separated and then he won. So for me, the post-election day was about a very different thing than it was for everybody else on the street. It that was, must have been an insane day. It was a very strange day. And Did I'll you never, see it coming? Yeah. It was hard to welcoming the inevitability of that because I was convinced that if I gave up the romantic side of that relationship that I would have to give up the career and the friendship and the, oh, wow. and the everything else, the living side. So there was a lot of reasons why I didn't pursue what I felt for a while and she felt for a while was definitely not working. So once we, there was, we didn't know he was going to win that evening and just the events transpired that we had that if serious If you knew, talk. that would have been a very, that would have been particularly interesting. Been, yeah, we would have been, yeah. I would you have really been. <laughs> wondered if we were insane. You but would have been one of the few. I was thinking a lot that day after the election of just like communal mourning and what everybody was doing to... And like, what now? And you just go, keep going. I had a long-term relationship with a lesbian. Mm. That was relatively complicated. And uh, I probably should have got out of it earlier than mm-hmm. I did. But we were very, very, very close. Yeah. And it happened, we connected like that. And we just felt this incredible bond. And we kept finding different ways to maintain it as a connection. Yeah long past its sell-by date in a certain mm-hmm. way. That was, sure. To this day, we're very close friends. Um, I like but, that sell-by date. That's a good one. I'll take that. <laughs> it was just, you know, there was, there was a moment where it became clear. You know, we started, mm-hmm. she's bi, mm-hmm. I thought. And she thought she'd convinced herself because it seemed like a healthy thing for her to do at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it became clear that she wasn't bi to me, mm-hmm she wouldn't let go of it. And mm-hmm. so this thing kind of maintained itself because I couldn't walk away, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We had no career connection that way. But I understand this elements of that dynamic, yeah. which can be, you know, really con- confusing, especially in the world in which we live where you figure, oh, listen, there's so many different kinds of relationships. You yeah. can figure everything out. You can, you know. You- it's just funny that the act of what, uh, stimulates you erotically can be in charge of how you categorize an entire connection with an entire human's mind, body, and soul, you know, just because that there's an erect penis or a, a lubricated vagina involved that happens naturally, that it should change anything else uh, about the the other 98% of that human being. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's actually, you realize, like, just how... So much of this cultural programming. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, man. I And I actually, like, you know, I did hold on to the idea that Katya was a lesbian as a way to take myself off the hook for, like, basically the mistreatment that I committed in that relationship and the, and the times when I was just a bad husband. Do you know what I mean? I looked to that to be like, oh, well, I didn't even have a chance because she was gay and— 
And I actually think that probably, and this is from her mouth, not mine, that she's queer and that she could end up with another man one day and not, you know, or a, a non-gender conforming person and that it isn't just like a woman on one thing. It's like her journey. It's not, it's, it's, I have been allowed to have access to uh, what she reports from it, but I don't know firsthand what, you know, what's going on there. But I did hold on to that notion because it 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 did help me uh, hide from the kind of shameful realities that I uh, contributed to an alienation that we both felt, and she as well. You know, we both did. But uh, but then you're working on the show fifteen hours a day. Yeah, yeah, and we were spending you know sixty hours, seventy hours a day, a week at work together, and then going home and being together. You know, we still spend six over forty hours a week together, and uh, now two years after the breakup. Yeah, two years after the breakup, I we I mean, she and her girlfriend came over to dinner with me and the person I'm seeing right now, and we had a really nice time. And I was like, you know, cracking everyone's backs, and and we were like doing like actually have these this like massager. It's called a Rolf Flex. It like squeezes your muscles. It's for like. Um, not rock climbers and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a rock climber. And we, we had like a really nice time. And I think that our relationship now is a relationship that I dreamed about having maybe three, four years ago. Something that I thought, oh man, it would be cool if it was this, but that's impossible because I thought it couldn't take out the romantic aspect that it would hurt too bad or this or that. But now we not having to include that that romantic side in which is a, basically a convention of the 18th century or 17th century, you know what I mean? Like this whole idea that this person is supposed to be yours forever, blah, 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 you know? Just notion that like, oh, I'll probably be with a lot of people in my life. I'll probably have several intense relationships in my life. There might be somebody who I want to make like a lifelong bet to, but probably not. And probably the same for her and the same for a lot of people. It doesn't make anyone deficient. In fact, it makes you more proficient at at being able to say, well, this part of this relationship is done, but you're still a full human being who I don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so, it, but how did you really those first few months, man, navigating that, coming into to the, yeah, it was onto, hard. onto the set? It was hard. You guys co-direct the show. Yeah, it was hard. And some days I was a real baby about it, and some days. I mean, I would say for the filming of season two, I was a, I had a, a storm cloud around me most of the time. I was very concerned that I was bringing such uh, emotional baggage to the room that people wouldn't want to work for me anymore because I just, I, not that I was like being outright rude to anybody, but I just, you know, wasn't laughing. I wasn't like, I, it really felt like I was just gripping and bearing through it hoping that it would end. And it took, and because I didn't really even get a, a period of separation from Katya uh, from that election day until basically the next July it was the first time that we didn't see each other for more than one day or so, more than a couple days. So would you guys take breaks a lot to go work your shit out without everybody else around? Like I mean, We how, tried to, but yeah. there wasn't, often wasn't that, you know, on this bigger set, like there's a PA following us around, making sure that we're within set distance so they can bring us back. We, I would have, uh, I would try to have like 
breaks and to go here or there. But at certain points, like we would disagree on something artistically, which happens outside of of being married or whatever. We would just have like artistic disagreements. And because of the storm cloud of what had recently happened, there was like this added layer to it. And like, you know, I'm like very uh, persistent. If I think that something is the right thing to do artistically, I um, if I, I truly know it's the right thing to do, if my gut says it, I won't back down and I'm annoying. And I will, I will be like, I'm very comfortable saying no now. And it's annoying for producers because they're just trying to get the job done. I'm like, okay, but this isn't it. This isn't good enough. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, do you and Katya have? An understanding about where you when you have when you guys have a disagreement, where she's got the domain to go, yeah, and or you do. Like, how do you, especially now that you've gone through this breakup, mm-hmm. like, how do you navigate those challenges? You just do it like an adult, I guess. You listen to why they think that is the right way, and then you explain why you think is the right way. It's a little bit easier because we're not a directing team anymore. So, she directed the first. Third and sixth episodes, I directed the four, second, fourth, and last episode. And then we have uh, two directors coming in to do the other three or other four, however it worked. There is like the, okay, well, if there needs to be a tiebreaker on these episodes, you can break the tie. But usually, listen, we've de- developed a shorthand over the past decade of how to speak to one another. We communicate be- almost without words often. Uh, so... That process of who has the last word or who how to come into agreement has been being de- has been developed over years and years and years, and it very little of that actually was affected by the oh you hurt me oh you're with somebody else you know I did there was a period of time where I had to do a little bit of soul searching to be like why don't you like this idea is it because it didn't come out of your mouth or is it because of what and I still do that to this day. I try to think about like I'm watching this other person's work right now. Do I just want to have to say something about it so that I can put my thumbprint on it and then I can recognize it as something that came from me, or is it actually a shitty idea? Uh, and I don't know what the statistics are on <laughs> how often each is it, but. Yeah, 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 but that's but that's part of the process. Yeah, that's just the and and a lot of it is just about coming back and checking your gut. I yeah, guess. it is very, um, it is very day to day. I I would say that editing is the most comfortable part of the process for me is because I can watch a concrete thing that's happening. And then I one day I can like it, and then I can go to sleep, and the next day watch the same exact thing, and I can not like it. 
but the thing itself didn't change unless we made changes. But you know what I mean? Like I can have an objective thing to look at and be like, all right, this isn't good enough and how can I make it better? But your gut, uh, it's tricky because your emotions can get in the way of your gut. And um, I know that what my gut feels like now, it um, I don't have to think much before I, I know the right answer. So I do a lot of writing down the first word that pops into my head. And usually that's the right. It usually is the right situation. Yeah. So when you're on the set, a lot of this, the action takes place where the characters are stoned. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you're coaching actors how to act stoned? That's a funny thing because uh, I'm always a little bit more like, no, people aren't acting stoned enough. A lot of actors we work with don't smoke pot, which is so interesting. A lot of them, we have to visually enhance their smoke with smoke effects because... I mean, when they're puffing. Yeah, because they don't smoke. We work with a lot of actors who don't, and it's so weird. The whole thing is like, you know, it is a show about weed, but it's not about weed. That's like the whole conceit. So to that kind of sometimes extends to, it's about getting stoned, but, you know, the, the issue isn't that they're stoned. The issue is that they're this, and they got stoned to figure out how to do this or whatever. I always do try to get people to mess up the lines, I guess. I really like it when people stutter or when people put pauses or trail off. or uh, that's, that's why I change the script a lot of times because I don't like a crisp line. You say something, now you say something. I like people to overlap one another. I like people to... That's what life sounds like to me, is a bunch of incomplete thoughts and poor grammar. But the, the show, I mean, you know, I, I did a little binge watching the last couple of days to prepare for this. And it has its own rhythm. And mm-hmm. it, the way that people express themselves is so particular to mm-hmm. the show. Yeah. It's a little like a Woody Allen movie. Oh, very much. Yeah. In the sense that after I watch a Woody Allen movie, everything feels like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. No, the you're watching it like talk, this is an episode of High Maintenance. Right. It's like, that. oh, yeah, I'm on yeah. the subway. And they're like doing that thing. And it's like, oh, are they being like, it's like, it's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a dagger there. It's like a little yeah. nasty and funny. And weird is like, oh, and aren't I being a caricature, right? I am a caricature right now of yeah. the kind of person you have on your show. And then it, yeah. so it makes you self-reflective in this really funny way. I call it shag or being blurry or just blurring the edges a lot. Just uh, when something is too crisp and too clean and the lighting is too good and I can see everything, it just feels like artifice to me. I believe that in trying to be naturalistic, you have to naturally say the lines and they have to come from somewhere. They have to come from somewhere inside of you. You have to think up the line as an actor before you're going to say it. You can't just say it because I told you to say it. Uh, And that's hard to do on such a tight TV schedule to get actors to do that. So I do a lot of tricks. I, mm-hmm. I'm, the kind of, I'm the kind of director who, who is yelling from behind the monitor being like, now do that. Now say it faster. Now do that. Like, oh, you're giving ri- line readings. You're actually kind Oh, of- I'm a line reader, dude. And sometimes I've seen an actor to get a little, I ask them if they mind if I do that often first, but I've definitely had an actor who wants to like prove their craft to do that. 
to do it because it came from their artistry or whatever. But I think a lot of directors are just like, stand a little to the right or yeah. say this faster, say this slower. It is a pacing thing. It's a tempo thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I'm editing, I'll put a song under it that has the right tempo or the right um, syncopation. You're choosing the music usually? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge part of the show. I was going to ask you. Yeah, it's a big, big part of the show. But I'll take that song out at when we release it if it's a silence, if there is no music. But I do want that pacing. Are you I want vibe. that tempo. Yeah, you go like, oh, it's got to be Fleet Foxes, but maybe I don't have to hear it. This yeah, or something or that it is, yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I do a lot of editing to music and removing it. And as uh, now in this our incarnation, we've been doing this show for seven years, and I used to edit everything, every single thing. And now we have three editors. They work on a cut and they give it to us and make notes. And by the by the last two rounds, I'm I'm actually pushing the buttons and moving stuff around. A lot of the times I'm adding pauses in. Like if the joke is there and yeah, haha, that's funny. Sometimes I'll just add a pause right before the punchline to show the character thinking about it and then saying it. And then it makes it like 10 times funnier. It's just adding an extra, like, we'll have the long the directors or the long editor's assembly, which is usually like 42 minutes, and we have to be between 20 and 30 minutes. It's really long. Then we'll suck up all the air out of it. We'll suck up all the excess, everything we don't need. So it's this tight little drum. And then we'll blow some air back into it strategically. Cool. Which filmmakers are your heroes? Heroes. The ones that you think of like, God, that's the guy, that's the woman. They're like, their work. That's the model. The mo- You know, it changes from time to time. I, It's cheesy, man, but Steven Spielberg is, every shot of his is motive. Every camera movement is motivated. There's always a foreground, a middle ground, and a background, a three-dimensionality to all of his shots. He has, like, you know you're watching it when you're watching it. Like, you can just see a couple of frames of it, and you're like, oh, I know this director. I know this signature. I think he is is really, like, given all that credit for a good reason. I think he really understands the machinery involved. Uh, I also, the, the stories touch you? Did his stories touch you? Yeah, yeah. And, and also, him and I come from, um, he was grew up in, Phoenix Scottsdale area too. Oh yeah. So his like view of the suburbs and that kind of like you know poltergeist neighborhood and ET neighborhoods like that's kind of like where I grew up. So I think he's got a nostalgia. They, the time is different, but to a place that I also share. I think that this Yorgos, what's his last name? I can't. Uh, he just did the favorite and he did the lobster. I can't even remember his name, but I love him so much. I really uh, think he's a genius. David Cronenberg, I think, is is pretty incredible as well. You know, I, I definitely, I get bored at Woody Allen films, to be honest. I, I, I kind of do now, too. But yeah. they're, they're, they did have they have yeah. this effect, nonetheless. It's yeah, no, I, I like Oh, that's the, what a New York cocktail party is like on the Upper West Side. Exactly, oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, while I admire Altman's uh, filmmaking tactics, I actually get bored of d- during those, too. I, I, don't, I don't tend to gravitate towards them. Oh, I really like Quaron's movies. Uh, Roma is one of the best movies I've seen in years. 
Oh, I have to check that. Oh, yeah. And go see it in the theater. I know it's limited release. And they're only, I just learned that Netflix is only doing theater releases so they can get Oscar bids or Oscar nominations. But that Quaron movie is fucking good, man. Check it Uh, out. Roma is really good. And I, and I really liked um, uh, Children of Men. He did oh, that yeah, as well. right, of course. Yeah. Hmm. And then I liked, uh, I like a lot of Mexican directors, actually. Yeah, E2 Mama Tambien was oh, that Cuaron? Yeah. yeah, I think that was Cuaron as well. I didn't realize that either. Or Inari no, Some one of the two. I'm uh-huh. feeling stupid because I can't remember. But I, I, I've been really drawn towards directors who, have a, who seem to have a lot of control over their vision. When it's too much control, I'm disgusted, though. When I see it's like when it becomes micromanaging, then it becomes truly repulsive to me. But when I see that there is this uh, tension building that is slow and steady, I guess it's control over the pacing and not over the performance in the environment. That's what I like. I like when they're embracing the chaos of just showing up at a place and capturing like wind and whatever, all of those things. But it makes me, the pace of how I feel about the characters is slowly built. It's like a composition to me. I think the directors I like are composers. That's sweet. Yeah. So to do what you guys do for high maintenance, you really got to know Brooklyn. I guess you do, yeah. I mean, it's so so delicate what you managed to catch of like you know contemporary brooklyn culture yeah right um do you spend a lot of time going out checking shit out you know god i don't i how do you tune into that stuff i i used to work in a plant shop before high maintenance during the initial years of high maintenance and i did a lot of plant deliveries and i went into a lot of people's homes with flowers and trees and uh would you know, sit on their terrace and look at their stuff. I did that for three years, and that was some of the first seeds of inspiration for high maintenance. And then I, when I do go into somebody's apartment, I, like, take a, a tour by myself, essentially. You do I an go, inventory? Yeah, I inventory a lot. For many years, I would look around and capture things in the city with the sole purpose of putting it in my work. So I was a little vigilant about writing down an overheard. Or I also have a fantastic memory, despite being a functional stoner. So I I really remember most of what has happened to me in my life. So when I need to recall something, uh, and if we're stuck in a moment with script or with the dialogue, I can I can recall stuff uh, pretty easily. I don't know. I guess I just take it for granted that I just inhabit that world. I I guess I go out sometimes. I'm not a bar guy. Uh, I like to ask very deep and personal questions to somebody very soon into knowing them. I'm not one for small talk, even though I find a lot of value in small talk. I used to think it was worthless, but now I just watch body language and and listen to intonation and uh, and gather a bunch of information by what they're choosing to ask or respond to it by insinuating or wondering what they're not saying or what they'd rather be talking about or how they feel about doing small talk. Like There is like a, a lot of information gathering that because of the show and I wanted to feed that beast and also my just curiosity about who somebody is uh, informs 
my my Brooklyn experience. Yeah. Did you interview any dealers? Ever? Yeah, they always want to talk to me. See, that's the thing. They always <laughs> want to talk to me, and they want to tell me about some weed pickup or some storage. And I'm like, but what about your uncle? Like, why don't you talk to them anymore? Or what have you? You know what I mean? I'm interested in the the stories behind the stories. Although I had been thinking that I should probably— I did go on a ride-along once in L.A., but I should probably get some more, like, the job of delivering weed-related things— uh, circumstances because, uh, especially this season, there is a little bit less of that. There's more like just the guy chilling this season or not trying not to be just a weed dealer or something like that. I mean, and, the guy, knows, I mean, he's through the various episodes, the guy reveals himself to be very bright, really like on target, some, sometimes really creative. He can do all kinds of interesting, he has a creative side to him. Mm-hmm. It's like, What's going on with this guy that he's a weed dealer at this point in his life? Yeah, that's what he's asking himself too this season. Is is what this is season three? Looking season ahead. three, but and yeah. season five, arguably season six, arguably. Uh, yeah, he. I mean, some of the stuff was I definitely didn't. I was so consumed with thoughts that of stuff that was happening to me when I was going through that divorce and and we were writing season two during that time and this process of breaking up. I just couldn't get out of my own experience because it felt so immediate and uh, something that I needed to deal with. So there, some of my personal experience snuck into the guys. Uh, experience last season and I thought to good effect except I've always I am very antsy about including too much about him although it keeps going that way we keep that de- we keep deepening him and it has I think a probably an overall positive effect but I do recognize that the show's so the show's strength is not him, and it's mostly in the short, short bit storytelling that we tell. So I think if we got another chance to make a season on HBO, I would definitely, and I say this every year, but really would try to return to telling those really short stories, really, really short stories, like seven to ten minute, three. I wish that we could do three in one, three in one episode all the time, you know, but it's hard to write a short story. It's hard to get, it's hard to set up a, a an entire human and their circumstances and their immediate circumstance and have like it always be them trying to get weed or something like that. It it usually expands into an 11, 12-minute story because that's like the sweet spot uh, for us, I guess, in terms of it'll take three minutes to get this opening teaser moment and this montage out and it'll take another two minutes to set up their situation and then the weed delivery takes wherever the guy else is it takes a minute and a half and then it takes another four minutes to like build up to a climax and then it takes a minute to finish it out so like it usually it's it, it when you put it like that it's like oh yeah that's quite swift but i always think it can be eight minutes and that would be enough a lot of times it's like i've been reading edgar carrot short stories right now you edgar know, what's his carrot, last name k-e-r-e-t i don't know oh he's uh he's big uh he's like a an author of short stories and he's Israeli and he's like one of their like, you know, national treasures over there. And his short stories, which are very similar to high maintenance and uh, shape and absurdity. He, he's more absurd, definitely, but and surreal, but they are revealing like the pain and humor of being alive, which are often under the same umbrella. And his short stories are 
like six pages usually, five pages shorter than that. And what I've noticed that he did is he just drops you right in the middle of whatever. And that's kind of what I was talking about of doing the aftermath of the climax is you, you're just dropped in and I don't need to explain why this and why that. It just is. You know, you're here and somebody's got a gun to this guy's head and I don't need to know why he's got a gun to his head. It's just it, That's just the immediate situation and I'm already engaged. Uh, I don't, you don't need to convince me. Mm-hmm. So I often, during the writing process, would struggle to be like, why should I care about this character? And now I understand... I care about the character because the camera is trained on them. And I care about them because you're telling me to as a filmmaker. So just like get on with it and stop trying to win me over and stop trying to explain. And that's when I think our show is at its best is when we give the audience enough credit to orient themselves in a world because there is a certain cue that we all think like an environmental cue or... um, a pattern of speech that a character has. Well, everyone will get it just in the in in that one sentence of speech or in that one like Brooklyn book that everybody has by their bedside table or right. th- that those mass produced items that we know signify some sort of wealth or some sort of coolness or not coolness, you know. So is the guy going to be faced with the possibility that Cannabis becomes legal in New York. Yeah, we hint that. We hint that. There is one scene where he goes to get his own weed card just to see what's going on, to see how easy it is to get one these days. Uh-huh. There's uh, inklings of that. I keep on trying to get the produ- the promotion team to do this, but he is searching for a higher purpose. You know, he likes people, and I always said that he likes to be around people. Dealing weed is his chance to engage with people on his own terms. I think he has a little bit of a rebellious streak in him. Uh It's definitely being challenged. And every year, you know, since the first interviews we did in 2013 or 2012, people will be like, what about when weed is legalized? And it's 2018 now, and we're still doing this. You know what I mean? Like, It'd be harder in L.A. Yes, it would be harder in L.A., but, you know— I don't like. I have ambitions to put this show in different countries with, uh, you know, a, a completely different guy and a completely. It's like The Office in America, but like high maintenance and in Mexico City or where have you. So That'd be awesome. I do have ambition to put. It's not about weed. It is about these people's desire to numb what. It's about whatever they're trying to numb. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. that's what it's about. So. I guess, sure, it would be hard to do it in L.A. because there's not this illegal form that because people go to the store, arguably they could come to a dispensary and it's just like a really good— It's like, yeah, cheers. Yeah, it could be like that. I don't want to make that show because I'd rather look at a bunch of apartments and stuff like that. I'd rather do the anthropological show-don't-tell thing. Yeah, it would be harder in some places when it's legalized, but until that day comes, I still I still order like overpriced uh weed in Brooklyn because I feel like it's kind of my duty to put back into that <laughs> a little bit even though it's so stupid and expensive, but the people I talk with and uh, the dealers, like they know they're talking to the guy from high maintenance and they do come loaded and ready to go with like, oh, this guy was like a germaphobe or this guy hadn't left his apartment or this or that. Like I do get that 
kind of stuff, and that's a little bit of my bread and butter. So that's, yeah, so picking up some story ideas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it costs, you know, I don't do it that much because it's too expensive. <laughs> you know, William T. Volman, William Volman is a novelist. Yeah. Yeah. He used to, old friend, used to back in the day pick up prostitutes uh-huh. and just sit with them for the two hours and talk to them. Yeah. And tape it. Yeah. And just like, I want to know about you. Right? Why do they have to be prostitutes? Well, you got to ask him about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's I think, what I would ask. That, he liked, that would yeah. definitely be one of the questions to ask, and he has a lot of good answers. Yeah. But uh, but that became sort of you know the idea of you know entering the tenderloin back in those days and getting an avenue in to that, fascinated by that culture, mm-hmm. by that scene, and these people, and understanding it. And then he wrote some amazing books about that. Well, I think the reason why prostitutes and the reason why weed delivery is what kind of sets those interactions apart from normal Dwayne Reed purchase is like that there is this uh, implicit complicity uh, with uh, breaking the law together, breaking the rules, you know, uh, and there is this inherent vulnerability to either being naked in front of a, a a prostitute or admitting that you need to get fucked up in front of a person. Uh, it's being like, hey, I, or letting them into your home or going into their realm, whether uh, it, it's, it's, there is like a enhanced vulnerability that you would, that is attractive to writers like myself and Volman, I guess, because it seems like they have more information than the run-of-the-mill person does about them. They're more willing to divulge secrets or things that are unattractive about oneself to these people because already, all right, I'm breaking the rules already. I've, I've got less to lose. Yeah. In part of this whole Brooklyn culture that you're capturing, there's also an interest in ayahuasca in various mm-hmm. spiritual practices, yeah. meditation, retreats, the whole territory which drops in yeah i the temptation has always been for me to make that the main course meal of the episode and i haven't done it yet because i think it's i think it's too easy i think it's i think it's like i don't want to make fun of it and i do want to make fun of it i want to do both uh so i have definitely have several scripts that have an ayahuasca ceremony in them and it's hard not to just make it about the vomiting and the. I tr- I almost made one that was about a uh, space issue of just like an ayahuasca just trying to uh, get a, a space and nobody will offer their spaces because the ayahuasca was like not a good guest, essentially. <laughs> so I have like I'm more attracted to the nuts and bolts of of this. <laughs> I I said it earlier, uh, capitalist animism. Uh, that goes into uh, getting people who are um, typically cut off from natural uh, natural places and natural processes, and then repackaging it for them in this uh, in this bundle that also offers a what do you call it uh, altered state, which people always love. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm I'm interested in in the sociological community effect of it rather than, I mean, it would be cool to get into the individual trip of it all or the individual experience. Uh, but it's when you zoom out, it's pretty funny. I don't know. I worked with an ayahuasca who sometimes I think like the dieta 
and this wearing down of a person and then espousing this information to them when they're already weak and been throwing up all night. And then you offer them food in the morning, the next morning, and they're like eating it up and feeling so good with these calories. And then they start really being like uh, espousing a lot more. Uh, oh, did you have that experience that yeah. the, the, the current era was actually dropping stuff on you the next day that you didn't necessarily want Yeah, to we would eat hear? like a big plate of fruit and chocolate and nuts together. And then he would say very general statements about the human condition of love and all this stuff while we were eating. And it seemed like a platform for his own philo- philosophical teachings that eventually led to a greater faith in this experience that we did or did not have, depending on who you were. How was your experience? I was trying to write an episode about ayahuasca, so I was trying to, I didn't go deep because I was just watching everybody else's Uh, interactions. You were doing field work. Yeah, yeah. I did, we did San Pedro in the mornings, and I did have, San Pedro used to grow in our, my front yard, like it grow, it grew everywhere in Arizona. Yeah, really? and we would chop it up and eat. We would drink it raw. Uh, How we, is that on the stomach? Yeah, not everyone could hold it down, but uh, it's. It, we joked. It tasted like Satan's cum. It was just this, <laughs> this vegetal, gooey. Gross. So you just do it on your own, not like any kind of shamanic. No, man, we just put on Kid A, we Radiohead's Kid A, and just and just go with it. Yeah. So that was kind of unsupervised, and I. It's funny. The first time that I chopped up a San Pedro cactus and drank it was my father was in the hospital with the he broke his leg and then he got a blood clot while he was healing. It was like he was the night he was basically. On his way to, it was very dicey whether he was going to be around. And I, in the conquest of getting this one plant, because the one in my front yard wasn't there anymore, so we went to this one neighborhood in Arizona that we knew there was a plant, and I got in a car accident on the way there, and then it was a small one. And then while I was getting my car towed, like my friends like took all the knives and stuff to cut up the plant and like sat in the back of this cop car and he drove the my friends who were holding a sweatshirt full of knives to this house to like chop up the plant and then when I by the time I got there later in the evening we'd already chopped it up and then we went back to my house and I didn't realize that the spirit of San Pedro was the father and I was having a very father oriented situation back then it's all seemed very um I mean I'll never forget it but I did have so when I do it now, I feel like I have a more personal connection to it, and it has a very high vibration. And I feel that it feels like I'm uh, grabbing um, an electric transformer when it happens. Like my the tips of my fingers are like shooting electricity. Yeah, yeah. So do you find it valuable to do it with some kind of Curandero type? Yeah, the, somebody supervising, participating, holding a space. Yes. I do. I I like not enforced meditation, but I like the person who gets you to sit and close your eyes and don't do anything. Because, you know, when people trip, they typically want to open their eyes and look at stuff and be somewhere and handle something in the, in the real world. I, I definitely have enjoyed the instruction to go inward uh, because I have found some valuable stuff going inward. But not as much in ayahuasca, more on San Pedro. My ayahuasca experiences are frustrating because 
I don't know if it's my cerebral nature. I don't know if I got like a not real circumstance or, you know, I'm doing too much. I'm being trying to fix it. I'm trying to. Well, approach, it, may, yeah. it, may, it may help if you come into the ceremony not trying to take notes for an episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might help, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but so that was like definitely the first two weekends. By the third mm-hmm. and the fourth weekend, I was trying to find something for myself. Mm-hmm. I'll say this, though. I feel like a million bucks the week after. You know, that still, that positive effect still happens. And I think that's kind of the dieta that makes that me feel good, really, yeah, sure. truly. It's not just the the night itself. It's like the, oh, you didn't eat a bunch of, like, sugar and shit the week before, so you feel great. You clean yourself out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then you backslide as life yeah, yeah. Comes, goes on. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I noticed that uh, in my last couple of sessions, my last couple of ceremonies, I was wondering if this is such a healing process, why am I seeing the same faces at these circles over and over and over again? If this is if this is making people better, then why do I see them here again and again? Right. Well, I can understand that. I mean, it, there's so many different ways that people work with a plant. Yeah. And sometimes it's this sense of I get such beautiful access. Mm-hmm. I want to return to that access to that astral spiritual thing yeah. and that in my daily life I can't get there by myself yeah. so I want to have that bridge please build the bridge for me it feels like suffering to me that feels like the Buddhist suffering that we talk about well if people are having bad experiences every time but it, maybe it's not yeah. even just a bad experience of just having a good experience oh, that the, when there's a lack of it it feels like you need it again that's like mm-hmm. what the that's what the Buddha was talking about suffering, the condition of suffering that like not even just like holding on to a bad experience, but holding on to a good experience and not believing in the eternal now is good enough, you know, yeah. that it, it, I feel like I, I witnessed that and I was like, oh, this is another form. This is another form of searching and suffering. Do you have a Meditation practice or any kind of practice? No, like man, that? I'm, t- yeah. I'm suffering too hard to do that. I have too much. To, I have to, <laughs> I have to suffer all day. To well, have, if, you see, if you're feeling that suffering in yourself, and everywhere you look, you see the suffering. Yeah, maybe, yeah. You know, no, I, that is definitely something that is very uh, huge for me. You know, I work. I achieve a meditative state in movement. Uh, I have noticed that when I am. You know, there are like little rocks in your ears that kind of help you balance. It's like little, you know, things. I find that when those are moving around in my head, whether it be from a forward propulsion or something like that, like bike riding is my most meditative experience. Because when you're biking in New York, you're, you, your head can go other places, but you're paying attention. You are in the now. You're making sure you don't get hit by a car. You are look. You are your peripheral vision is very intact, mm-hmm. and I feel the most present when I'm biking around, yeah. for sure. If I'm ever struggling with something, I just get on my bike and put on some music, and I'm good. That's always been the thing for you. I didn't realize it was always the thing until I just noticed that it was the thing. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, well, I mean, that I would s- feel better after. Yeah. So, did, did you were a biker before you came to New York? No, I started biking as a mode of transportation once I got to New York. I bought like a bike for $25 that was most definitely stolen off the street. And at, over the years, especially when I was living in Ditmas Park and commuting to Williamsburg and it was like a 45-minute ride or like I would commute to the Chelsea if I had a job there and it would be like an hour ride. I That was like, then it solidified that that was my 
That was my meditative process. Yeah, you see a lot of biking on that show, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah? It looks cool. It looks very cool. Yeah, yeah. We. It's always been a hassle to get it because you're not allowed to have motorized vehicles in the bike lane and so it's always from the side. Oh, and, you mean to actually shoot it when you're yeah, like, yeah. Where, where's the camera? Yeah, you're always dealing with the city and, and uh, Do you have to get permits just to shoot somebody? You gotta get bike? permits for everything, man. Oh it's God. It's gotten so much uh, uh, less spon- spontaneous to create this show because of all of the things that you need to do. So if you were just to pick up a few shots of the guy riding a bike Somewhere in Ditmas Park, the city would know if you didn't yeah, you get have the permit. To tell him if you're going to shoot out the car. I mean, it didn't used to be that way when we were on the internet. You know, we used to just shoot out of a minivan, and then I used to ride up or behind or. But you know, we, there's just too many eyes on us now. How did you pitch that show when it was an internet show to begin with? Like, to, to I didn't s- need to pitch it. I just no? made it. You made the first one. Yeah, we made the, the first yeah. nineteen. Oh, you ne- like who paid for it? We paid for it for the first 13 and through 14 through 19. Vimeo gave us like a micro budget to work with. I thought that Vimeo was maybe there in the beginning. No. No, no we made the, they weren't very expensive because I was editing and uh, we'd borrow friends' cameras or they were shot on DSLRs and all that shit. And they weren't very expensive to make. And they were like, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars by the 13th episode. And the first were like a couple hundred. I didn't realize it was that bootstrappy. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Which is why whenever people are like, I going to pitch this show, we're talking about pitching, and I've been through a couple of pitching processes now for shows that still haven't been picked up because I've been trying to explain to some creative executive who is, you know, not the same brain as mine who needs to communicate to their boss what my brain is thinking and those shows don't go anywhere so I'm just a big proponent of just do it and if you don't want to get in trouble for using unlicensed stuff or whatever just don't make money off of it until somebody is willing to give you money and then say okay and pay for this too you know Right, because when there's no financial thing associated with it, there's no damages. Yeah, Yeah, they can't come after you for damages. So the music you used in the early episodes, they eventually went back later and Mm -hmm. got the rights. Yeah, we would, at a certain point, we replaced it with like temp stuff until we got enough money to go back and replace it with the real stuff and pay the actual cost. It's awesome. It was awesome. It was very lucky, and we kind of stumbled into that that formula. We didn't really know what we were doing. That's sometimes the best way. Yeah. Oh, I think always. I think now that I'm knowing what I'm doing, it's harder for me to start things because I know about what go, what I will encounter. So I'm like, oh, is this really going to be worth all that jazz? But all of my jazz happened time release over years. You know what I mean? So when I look at the whole mountain now of the whole project, I like it all comes and hits me at once. You know, it's like when you get a course syllabus at the beginning of your year and you're like, fuck, this is going to be a hard year. It's like, no, it's going to be spread out. Right. Cool. Ben, yeah. thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. Yeah, it was today. a great time to be here, yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, and thank you for getting me in here finally. I know it took a while. I'm really glad I didn't come here that first time because I was going through the divorce stuff at that time. It would have <laughs> been a really weird conversation, so I'm glad we took the time and did it right. Perfect time. Yeah, Ken, thank you. Take it easy. I want to thank Ben Sinclair for being a guest on the podcast, and thank you, too, for joining us. The new season of High Maintenance debuts on January 20th, 
and you can find the first two seasons, as well as the early webisodes, on HBO Online. You can also follow Ben on his Instagram at Look, I'm happy, please believe me. It's spelled the way it sounds. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, please share this episode on social media, tell your friends over tea or an herbal elixir, mention it in the hall after yoga class, and if you can, also leave a star rating on iTunes. We will be forever in your debt. You can send us a note at theevolver at evolver.net, and remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Media. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check him out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.